I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Sashi Mormon on the show. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm great. Nice to have you here. Great to be here. So you're involved in a number of different projects, and I'm not actually sure how to introduce you. So what would you say about what it is that you do? It's it's really a difficult question to answer because I work on six different wineries, of which I'm partners in three. And they're in different states sometimes. Sometimes they're in different states, yeah. So... I guess the winery that I've been with for the longest is Stoltman Vineyards. And that's a Syrah and Rhone variety. Right, in Ballard Canyon. And I work with Pete Stoltman. Previous to that, I worked with his father, Tom. They're just super great family. And although I don't have any equity in that business, I, I really feel... Hint, hint. <laughs> <laughs> so for those who may well, be listening who's... <laughs> Whose last name is Stolman? Uh, yeah. Well, actually, that, that's something where it's a, it's such a family business that you don't even really want to be inside that because I think it's really special as a family business. But they they treat me like a partner. Oh, it's not because they would ask you to like take out the trash and wash the car and stuff, like do family chores. Oh yeah, you want to be part of the family? No problem. Yeah, you know, go clean out the reservoir. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's been a while. That's been since like one. That's been since one. And what are the other? Things that consume your time. There's a new winery that I started with three years ago, and that is a winery called Pence. And they're also in a state program. I, I prefer estate programs just because the relationship between the vineyard and the winery obviously is a really important one and something that I, I really value. How does that play out? I mean, in real life, when it's a state, how does that benefit you? I mean, it may seem so obvious that it's a dumb question, but right. if I'm dumb, please tell me. One could say that it's better for people who you know need to feel like they have a lot of control. But I think for me, it, it's really more the emotional value that when you have the ability to participate, and this is, I guess, a reason why I'm, I'm you know, feel really fortunate and lucky to be a California winemaker, even though I happen to drink a lot of European wines, is because... There's a, just a great amount of satisfaction in seeing a, a raw piece of land and being part of a process of 
developing that piece of land and planting it to the right, or at least what you think is the right grape varieties and how the the vineyard is going to be laid out in terms of its vine density and its trellising, how the canopy is going to be managed. And then there's the steps of farming it and how you're going to farm it. And so I think all of that just makes those grapes at the end of the harvest that much more special to you. It's the first steps of winemaking, really. It's really participating in the conceptual part of wine, which is trying to imagine what it's going to be when it doesn't exist yet. And what about Pence? So Pence is a, is an estate program. The owner, Blair Pence, has a beautiful piece of property. The soils are quite interesting. They're very similar to Stoltman in the sense that they are clay over limestone, but it's in a different climatic region. And so, you know, one of the most difficult things today about making wine in California is that the generation before us really just planted kind of everything, fruit salad concept. You know, Stolman in the beginning had Nebbiolo and Malbec and Cabernet Franc and, I mean, all these varieties because you just don't know what's going to do well. Now that we've had more time and there have been a bevy of really successful wines, particularly in Santa Barbara County, which I'm most familiar with, we have a much better roadmap of what would be the correct variety for that terroir and that, you know, particularly the climate. And so it's just a region that is not in. So I have a lot of time and energy spent at Domaine Lacote, which is on the very western edge of Santa Barbara County, and a lot of time and energy spent at Ballard Canyon, which is kind of in the middle to the eastern side. And so there's this middle part that I really wanted to have a chance to explore because there we're really working with, we're on that, those margins of Syrah and Chardonnay and Gamay. And, and it's something that doesn't really necessarily fit as well at other places. And so there's a slot there that, that is really unique and interesting. Do you think some parts of Santa Barbara aren't as suited to those grape varieties? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that the California in general, you know, you can be fairly successful growing a lot of different varieties on a vineyard. But there should be, if it's an interesting terroir, there should be a grape that excels above other grapes. And, you know, I, I think particularly if you buy into the idea of the French Appalachian system, it's not that you can't grow Pinot Noir and Coroti. Of course you could. The idea is that Syrah does better there. And so you should work with grapes that are more simpatico to the terroir and not say, well, I really like Pinot, so I'm just going to, I'm going to make this work wherever. So for every lock, there's a key. Yeah. And I think we've, you know, we're just the beneficiaries of a lot of pioneers. You know, you have Josh Jensen who planted Pinot Noir and the Gavilan Mountains there and Clara, and that's a really different climate than, you know, what we have at Domaine de So I think that today we just have great varieties, whether it's Pinot Noir, Syrah, or Chardonnay, or Cabernet Sauvignon, planted in so many different climates and soils that if you are coming into the wine business today, you just have a lot of material there to digest and I think really help you make a much more informed and intelligent decision about what to plant where. But a lot of that digestion seems for you to be old world based, drinking old world wines and looking at the old world paradigm. 
Yeah. Like you talked about Corvo T and Pinot Noir and why that wouldn't work. And then saying like, you know, maybe this wouldn't work here, but this would. Yeah. Certainly I cut my teeth uh, with European wines. And that was here in New York with a guy actually not far from here, Etazuni. Jonathan Rapp and his father, Tom Rapp, they're both great wine lovers. And Jonathan, I think when I look back on it, it's amusing to me because he he was ahead of the curve in many ways in terms of the wines that he was interested in in 1995. Yeah, we were we were drinking wines from the Jura and we were drinking Austrian Rieslings. And, I mean, things that have all had their kind of their phases, you know, recently. And we were exploring all those wines because he was just extremely academic about wine and was a voracious reader and was always tasting wine and reading about it. And so it was just a great mentor for me in the beginning. And so... And this was a restaurant. You used to work as a cook. This was in a restaurant where I think the greatest benefit to me was that we took our family meal at the end of the evening. <laughs> so we weren't trying to, you know, get a, a meal in before service and then trying to get the hell out. We waited until the last customer left, and then we made ourselves dinner with the staff, and we chose bottles of wine to enjoy with that meal, and it was just great. How many of the staff ended up dating because of that? <laughs> well, he, well, Jonathan ended up marrying uh, one of the waitresses, so I guess I guess there was <laughs> there was a little bit of romance to that. Um, but it, it was romances, maybe it was it was a very romantic way to be in the restaurant business, because as you know, and. I've worked in a few restaurants other than Atazani. It's it can be really tough, and it's usually not that personal. And I think that that drinking wines that way with Jonathan was just a a great way for me to understand the value of wine in that context, which is in the context of food. And you also worked at Obelisk in DC, and they're kind of known for a different kind of wine context than a lot of restaurants would be. Yeah. So Peter Paston, who is my partner with my wife at Pedro Sassi, which is a small winery and bakery that we own, is been another, you know, really important figure in my life, great mentor. He just has this really unique touch with food. So I think that a lot of what we think is special in food sometimes or often maybe comes across as gimmicky you know, it's an infusion or it's foam or, and they all, it's all part of, you know, evolution and the the development of cuisine. Peter never bought into any of that. He, he really has his own style and it's Italian based, but his food has a quality to it that is unique. And people who eat his food recognize it pretty quickly. You don't nearly need to be that educated in cuisine to know that you're eating something that you just wouldn't find in a lot of other restaurants. And I think he has, he had the same values when it came to appreciating wine. And so he was the one that taught me about, you know, Quintarelli and Valentini and wines that are not so easy to understand from a, you know, a correct winemaking point of view. They were wines that had, as Peter likes to say, you know, he likes wines with issues. And I think that that helped me also understand that you know, what is a beautiful wine can come in many different ways. And he was also known for aging wine for a long time and then selling it at the restaurant aged, as opposed to what a lot of other restaurants would do, which is not that. Right. You're really eating, I mean, it's not that far, but 
you are almost eating out of his home. I mean, it's very personal. The space is very him. The food is very him. The wines are the same wines he has in his own personal cellar. So I guess, you know, that's, you can't say that about a lot of restaurateurs, that what they have on their wine list is what they have also in their own personal cellar. And I think that that's what makes maybe his restaurants kind of special because you wouldn't really see that much of a difference in the the cellar of the home than the cellar of the restaurant. How'd you get hooked into that? I mean, was that just dumb luck or? It was dumb luck. Um, I had a friend in college who was working on a farm and they were selling produce to Peter. And when I told my friend that I was interested in cooking, uh, he and I were both from Washington, D.C. Our families lived in Washington, D.C. And he said, oh, you you really need to go seek out Peter because I deliver produce to a lot of restaurants in Washington, D.C. And there's just not a restaurant that's like that. And he could tell even not even eating the food, just what the kitchen was like. <laughs> But I mean, you'd already kind of evidenced some interest in wine because in college you'd done some yeah. research. Yeah. So I, so, uh, I worked for Peter in the summertime. I mean, I did work again with him in the summer of 97 while on a little hiatus at Ojai Vineyard. But Peter was probably one of the beginnings of my interest in wine. When I started working for him, I don't I, I was curious about it, but I didn't see it as I see it today, which is for me personally, you know, wine is just, it. it's more fascinating to me than food. But that's not how I felt when I started. Is that what brought you through to wine? I mean, was that yeah. really that realization? You for said? me personally, I, I, I was... Um, you hated foam. That was it. You're like, <laughs> fuck this. I'm going to wine where they're never going to infuse this shit. I think... Maybe one of the, I, there are a lot of reasons, but one of them is one of the most frustrating things about cooking food is we have a culture which, whether it's right or wrong, it doesn't matter, but the customer is always right. So you can be very personal about your cooking and invest a lot of time and energy into what you think is a beautiful dish, and a customer will really feel no remorse saying, if you could just put everything on the side, <laughs> that would be awesome. And it just kind of ruins the whole, you know, Etazuni was an open kitchen. So we got to see every plate land at every table and, you know, having plates come back and say, well, you know, I'm, I don't like this or I don't like that. But you realized that you were in the Upper East Side. Right? <laughs> I mean, did you make that realization at some point? Because that's the clientele that's the hardest with that aspect in maybe the world. And that could be that. And I, yeah. So you're saying that because you worked in a restaurant in the Upper East Side, you gave up cooking. That's what you're saying, right? I mean, no offense to the Upper East Side. I live there. It's just that I'm well aware of this characteristics of which people have here. You know, respect to them, but at the same time, they do this a lot. Maybe I, maybe I, I need to give that more credit in my career path. Yes, I, you know, talking to a lot of friends of mine who are in the Russian business. I mean, it's worse today than it ever has been, and probably back in 1996 when I was working on the Upper East Side, it was maybe as bad as it is today everywhere. So I got an early taste of what was to come. But did you ever think to yourself, maybe the East Village? <laughs> like should, you could, you'd be like still I, cooking today. You I, know what I mean? I, I could potentially still be cooking today. What I what I liked about wine was that when you make a bottle of wine, no one tells you. I shouldn't say that. 
there are some salespeople that tell me otherwise. But most people don't tell you, you know, you could have used a little bit more new oak or maybe you should have done some more whole cluster. Are you sure people don't? I mean, that sounds exactly (laughs) what people say. Like, you've never had a sommelier do that? Like, have you thought about it? I mean, one, one, that's funny, though, because you guys already use a fair amount of whole cluster. So that's funny that, like, the worry would be that someone would come in and tell you to use more whole cluster. Like, hey, have you thought about it? But, I mean, no one's ever said no sommelier. Is it just that you're in Santa Barbara and you don't see a lot of people? You know, I'm really embarrassing myself because um of course a sommelier has told me that his name is raj par right, right. <laughs> like exactly that like wouldn't it be better if we use more whole cluster <laughs> like and he happened to be right but it, it's um i think that there's a difference uh, uh there's a fine line between collegial collaboration and and a customer telling you or a salesperson even worse telling you what you should be doing with your output <laughs> So you went out <laughs> into the sticks where you didn't have to talk to anyone. Hey. And you're like, no one's going to tell me to put it on the side. It's all going into the bottle. Wow, you are you are great at drawing the lines here because that is that is probably why Adam Tolmack is in the middle of nowhere. So, And I that was your first kind of winemaking yeah. job. And no one was going to tell him anything out there. <laughs> well, well, he also used to do that thing where like some days were winery days and some days were vineyard days. And like, it was just like trying to reach him at the vineyard to be like, yeah, I don't think he's going to pick up. I mean, right. I mean, oh yeah. No, Adam was, you know, I've been just really lucky in having all of these really talented people take the time to, to help me along. And Adam was another kind of instrumental person who, you know, when I look today at our winemaking program, and I think back on what I was being taught that very first year I was with him, the harvest of 96, we basically employed 90% of the same techniques. I mean, um, he's a big Syrah and Pinot guy, and you're a big Syrah and Pinot guy, right? I mean, Yeah, and he, but he, you know, I think a lot of the people that I've worked for never got enough credit for being pretty cutting edge at the time. Just like Jonathan was cooking food and building a wine program that you really didn't see in very many restaurants, even in New York. Adam Tolmack was, at that time, making wines with no sulfur or very, very little sulfur and employing things that we do today in the winery that are very fashionable now that Adam was doing 20 years ago. He, wasn't, he just wasn't getting any credit for it. Well, when he was with Jim, they were one of the first people to realize about stems, about yeah. like how to actually use them as opposed to like taking them off and throwing them back in or <laughs> right. like putting them through some kind of shredder and then putting them back in because they had seen it in Burgundy, which was the difference. I mean, that's the story I've heard. I don't know if that's true, but I think that's true. You know, Adam was someone who he had had his own vineyard, he had lost it to Pierce's disease in Ojai. So he had experience farming vineyards. When I worked for him, he didn't own any vineyards. He was buying all his grapes. But he was very deeply interested in, in vineyards and how they were being farmed and the differences and, and trying to establish in his own way a hierarchy. This vineyard is better than that vineyard. Well, why? You know, then if you can figure out why, that will maybe help you in your progression as, as a winemaker because... Those are important questions to answer. For your own style of wine. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, his own style of wine seemed to get riper over time, no? They did. And I think that 
when when we talk about that, and I don't mean when I talk about that with Adam necessarily, but but the subject comes up often because it's it's a really important one for California. The ripeness issue that was prevalent in the late nineties and the two thousands was I think brought on a lot by the lack of sophistication at the vineyard level. You know, I had a, some people ask me today a question about, well, why in Burgundy has it, you know, changed so much? I mean, someone asked me, you know, I hear about everyone doing pumpovers with Pinot Noir, and I thought pumpovers was more for more robust wine. Um, I thought Pigeage was the classic way of fermenting Pinot Noir. And I said, it's interesting that you bring that up because it was the classic way of making Pinot Noir. And the winemaking techniques have changed in Burgundy because the grapes have changed. And they don't need to punch down so much to get color. They're already getting color. And people forget Guy Akkad, who <laughs> promoted these 30, 60-day cold macerations just to get color because they were struggling to get color. And people were using enzymes to get color. And most vignerons today who, have, who are really good grape farmers, they would never tell you they have a problem with color anymore. But that would be quite strange to, for someone who was growing grapes in the 70s to hear that. When Hubert Diamanti was doing all those punch downs, it was because... He couldn't get enough color in his wine. You know, he wanted color. Are you saying that the difference is climate or that it's clones? I think it's, so it's all those things, right? It's, it's the climate has changed a little bit. Certainly the genetic material that people have planted in their vineyards is better and farming technique. And so there's been kind of a reverse between Pinot Noir grown in France and Pinot Noir grown in California. The farming has increased the sophistication and the execution of farming has is on a whole nother level today than it was 20 years ago. What that's done is that's allowed Burgundians, I think, to make wines that need less extraction in the fermentation so they can be more gentle. And I think in California, it's allowed us to harvest grapes earlier. I don't think when I ask Adam why he picked the grapes when he did, first thing he would say is like, because if I picked them early, they, would, they wouldn't taste good. And I believe him. I, I believe him that at that time, picking the grapes at 22 bricks because the farming or the vineyards weren't there and the farming wasn't there, the wines just wouldn't turn out very well. They turned out better when you let them get riper. And I think today we have a whole new set of vineyards. And that has given us the opportunity to make a whole new set of wines. So you're essentially saying that you're getting phenolic ripeness at a lower bricks. And so you can pick earlier. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and, and to put it in the most simplistic terms, because probably what is the greatest fear for most people producing wine of picking early is not lack of color or even too much acidity, because those things are actually quite popular today. It's greenness. And greenness can mean harsh tannins or very vegetal aromas that are just not pleasant, particularly when you're talking about a red wine. And so I think that that greenness, and if that's tied to phenolic ripeness, which I would say it is, yes, today you can pick grapes earlier and not get that greenness that, that Adam was talking about with the grapes that he was working with back in the 90s. But sometimes greenness is also associated with underripe stems, right? Like, right. you know, whole cluster. 
and you guys and he, Adam, used stems. So was that another concern? He was trying to get the stems ripe? Or? Th- that to me is more of a function of vigor and irrigation. So very vigorous vines. If you use a lot of whole bunches, you'll get a lot of greenness. Even if the bunches are large, even if the stems look really big, if the vineyard is not overly vigorous and isn't being watered too aggressively, I think that the stems will be much better. Obviously, you can still get a little bit of greenness, and I think that people like that because it gives freshness to the wine. The reality is the farming, I think, affects more that stem quality than anything else. You know, there is a real, seems to me, a difference between Burgundy and America and California is that one of those is a higher pH soil than the other. And then stems, when you use them, pulls out potassium and affects that ratio, right? Right. So one of the challenges with working with whole bunches is that you're going to see higher pHs, not necessarily lower acidity in terms of the way the wine feels, but you will have higher pHs. And that that just really presents difficulties on the efficacy of sulfur. For me, I've had many surprising moments, you know, and I think most sommeliers would say this, and certainly a lot of winemakers would say this, that they'll have a wine that they think is just this, you know, beautiful wine, and they'll be surprised at the alcohol content or the pH or the TA. It's not what they think it is. And so I think that a lot of those numbers are, they're very good guidelines, but they don't necessarily, I mean, you can have a beautiful wine at a very high pH and you can have a beautiful wine at a very low pH. But is that a kind of like a fundamental difference between Burgundy and California, like the pH of the soils? The pH of the soils are different. Although, you know, only the soils that have limestone would have the, the high higher pH soils. I think that the chemistry of the grapes, the juice, from what we've learned, and I can't say that we have a really wide sample set, but from what we've learned from our friends in Burgundy, the numbers are not that different. And in fact, oftentimes with some of the vineyards that we work with, our numbers are theoretically better, meaning that we have lower pHs and TAs that are very, you know, in a good range and potential alcohol in a very good range. We had a chance to work with Dominique Lafon up in Oregon. And so I have no reason but to trust him. In our all of our conversations about wine chemistry, there wasn't a huge difference. And that's surprising because Oregon has very low pH soils. Wherever it rains a lot, you tend to have lower pH soils, more acidic soils. And so that's probably, there's probably the, in terms of soil pH, you have the biggest difference between Oregon and Burgundy. The pH of the soils are completely different. Yet somehow the grapes, in terms of their chemistries, are not that different. And lately, Oregon's been quite a bit warmer than Burgundy. Yes, from what I know, and I don't have that much experience in Oregon, although I try and ask people who've made wine in Oregon for a long time, it's my my favorite question is, you know, just talk to me about the vintages. I want to hear about the vintages. And I think from what I can gather, it's been warmer 
And from the experience that Raj and I have had up there, the summers are very warm. And the heat on those hot days comes at a time that's very unusual for us. It comes at the end of the day. Five, six o'clock is usually the hottest time of the day, which has, I think, really significant meaning in terms of row orientation and how you develop vineyards. Because when the heat is coming at the end of the day, well, I should back up. In California, the general preference is for a north-south row. Because at the hottest time of the day, which is at around noon, you want the vines, the sun right above the canopy. So all the grapes are in the shade. And so they're not being exposed to the strongest amount of solar radiation. But in Oregon, that the strongest amount of solar radiation happens at the end of the day when the sun is setting in the west. And so on a north-south row, the west side just gets a lot of sun. But if, if you had east-west rows, then your grapes are all in the shade because as the sun is setting, it's casting a shadow along the canopy. And there's probably not a lot of people that share my opinion on this, but from what I've seen in Oregon, what I've seen are east-west rows at Seven Springs do better. And I've experienced a lot of warm vintages. So maybe in cooler vintages, it's not as significant. But in the last couple of vintages, east-west rows have been a godsend. Would you start to think to yourself, oh, maybe the grapes from one side of this row would go into one wine and the grapes from the other side of it would go into the other? I mean, are they that different? They are different. But for us, we try not to be that micro-oriented when it comes to harvesting and fermenting the grapes. We like to work in terms of a parcel. So in Oregon or at Domino Lacote, we have La Source parcel or we have Lacote or Bloomsfield and so that to us is it's an organism, it's a vineyard, and we try and use the grapes from the whole vineyard. Because in our experience, we found that you make a better wine. Trying to parcel out all these different cuts from it, sure, you get different results, but at least in our experience, when we've done that, when we just decided to throw it all back together again, you have a better wine than- It's more trying, complex wine. Yeah, trying to pick out the best little piece. You know, It just doesn't- I mean, I think that there are, obviously there are vineyards that are very, very small, that are superior. I just think we have a long ways to go before, you know, at Seven Springs, for instance, a lot of the vineyards we're working with, we're working with genetic material that we wouldn't necessarily plant today, row orientations that we wouldn't normally employ, canopy management styles or, or trellising that we wouldn't necessarily do. So, for us to get to the point of saying this one acre is the best one acre we have here, we don't have the infrastructure yet at the vineyard level to determine that. That's the beauty of Burgundy is that essentially the entire Cote d'Or is planted meter by meter. And a lot of it is now planted to very, very good genetic material. And they have the right row orientation depending on what the aspect is. And you can get down to that very minute level where this half hectare is not necessarily better, but it's unique. And, you know, that relative difference is the whole reason that one should be interested in terroir, not a hierarchical evaluation that this vineyard is better than this vineyard. You know, the absolute value is not as interesting, I don't think, if you're really in love with terroir, than the relative value. 
So that being said, I mean, would it be perhaps fulfilling for you to do some work in Burgundy? You know, like, <laughs> I mean, you know. Oh, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I think all of us, there's probably very few winemakers who produce Pinot Noir in California and Oregon who wouldn't love to be able to make wine in Burgundy. I think that the issue with that is that would I rather have five hectares of village level vineyard in Burgundy, or would I rather be working with Seven Springs and Domaine de la Cote? That's an easy question. I, I would much rather have Seven Springs and Domaine de la Cote to work with. If someone were to offer me Muzumi and Bonemar, <laughs> that's a different question. So again, another message to the Stolpen family. <laughs> <laughs> no, but so to go back to that ripeness question for a second, I mean, one of the things that you do sometimes is that you are farming ungrafted vines, you know, own-rooted vines. And sometimes what I've seen with own-rooted vines throughout different parts of the world is that they achieve phenolic ripeness at a lower alcohol level, lower bricks. How's your experience of that? And what is it like to farm those in an era where most people would think eventually they're going to die because of phylloxera? Yeah, own-rooted vines are something that's of great interest to me. We have own-rooted vineyards in Oregon that I don't think coincidentally produce our best wines. And we have own-rooted vineyards in Santa Barbara County. And oftentimes in the Piedrasasi program, for instance, Rimrock, Syrah is our, usually our best cuvee. Those are own-rooted vines. At Stolman, our vineyards that are own-rooted have consistently produced, if not the best cuvees, in the top selection of cuvees. And I think that in the Santa Rita Hills, we work with Sanford and Benedict and Rinconada. They're side by side. There's a small difference in the terroir, but one is grafted and one is ungrafted, and the ungrafted vineyards always produce in our in our winemaking superior cuvee. So I have a lot of empirical evidence that own rooted vineyards are special. I think it has to do with the vine is more sensitive. It's more sensitive to the terroir when it's own rooted because when you make a rootstock selection, you have many choices. And those choices are made usually for the benefit of the vine. So for instance, in Burgundy, where they have a lot of limestone soils, most of the American rootstock that was chosen to be grafted onto, or Pinot Noir to be grafted onto this rootstock, was lime resistant. Balandieri stock from Texas. And at Stolman, we have same thing. We have a lot of grafted vines that are on rootstock that has a lime resistance. Or if you have soils that are quite high in salts, there are rootstocks that will help you deal with that. I mean, there, are, you know, there are rootstocks that are good. There are shallow rooting and there are rootstocks that have long, big tap roots. And so you, you have all of these choices when you order your plants from the nursery, what kind of rootstock to use. And obviously, people are choosing rootstocks that will give them some kind of advantage. And so when you think about Burgundy and you think about the pre phylloxera vineyards, those were all Vitis vinifera on their own roots, and they would have struggled in those lime soils. There would have been probably less vigor and you might have seen lower yields, and you might have seen different chemistry in the grapes. And certainly, a lot of older vignerons will tell you that there was something special about the pre-phylloxera vineyards. 
Now, maybe that's just being romantic, but I think there, there's some truth to what they're saying. And there are still some vineyards in France that are beautiful, that are on their own roots, and they're pretty celebrated today <laughs> by the French, you know, and, and by winemakers. And so I think there is, there's something to it. And I think it's a unique advantage that we have in Santa Barbara County because we have so little phylloxera. And it doesn't seem to migrate very easily on its own. Oh, really? Because when I think of phylloxera in California, I kind of think of it as a thing that's there a lot. So in the North Coast, absolutely. You would be very foolish to plant a vineyard on its own roots today in Napa Valley or Sonoma. But in Santa Barbara, we still plant a lot of vineyards on their own roots. And they don't, you know, knock on wood seem to be succumbing to any phylloxera damage. And in Oregon, I had the chance, although it was very brief, to work with a wonderful person, Mimi Castile, who has done a lot of work in her family's vineyards with unrooted vines. And she really believes, and I believe her, that you can farm for those unrooted vines to give them more opportunities to succeed, meaning that by strengthening the root systems, they will be able to handle phylloxera. And yes, you will never get big yields, but when you're making fine wine, the point is not to get big yields. And what we see at Seven Springs is, at least right now, the balance that we like to see in California, we see in the own-rooted vineyards at Seven Springs that are suffering from phylloxera because they do have less vigor and they produce less fruit, and the morphology of the clusters is smaller, smaller berries, smaller clusters, thinner stems. And from those grapes, at least the way we make wine, we produce our best wines. But that kind of sounds a lot like, you know, if the vineyard were virused, we'd make better wine. Like if we had tons of leaf roll, or, you know, if nematodes were going crazy, this would be awesome, because we would have less volume, but we'd love the wine. I mean, isn't that isn't that the similar thinking? I know it's not the same issue, but... It's very similar in the sense that it's, to me, vines that are too happy, it's very difficult to make great wine from. Wines that are great at expressing their terroir need to have some kind of resistance to their growing. There needs to be some pressure to them, and that pressure could be limestone, you know, a high pH soil. It could be, for instance, that Domaine Lacote, very cool growing temperatures and lots of wind. It really limits the vigor of the vine. It could be lack of water. It could be a little bit of virus. I've never been, but very famous winemaker that I know in California came back from Chateau Reyes and said, well, I can tell you why the yields are low at Chateau Reyes, that the whole vineyard is virused. And it made him really think about what because all the vineyard managers will tell you, oh my God, if you have virus, you got to remove it. You got to get rid of it. Because they're naturally inclined to help cultivate healthy vines. But that might not be what makes the most interesting and expressive wine. So in France, there's a lot of limestone, I mean, relatively in certain areas. And in California, there's really not much. But there is a lot of volcanic soil. And sometimes it's referred to as tufa. And I feel like you have certain areas where there is this volcanic tufa. And how do you see volcanic soil as related to limestone soil? I mean, are they totally different? Do they share something in common? Yeah, they're totally different. I would say that 
I'm very, very interested in soil in terms of how it helps you produce more distinctive wines. So at Dominal Coat, where Raj and I work, we have vineyards that have very different geologies. And we really believe that that's a big part of why the wines are so different. And Because you have multiple vineyards in a similar space. And they're farmed exactly the same way, and winemaking is the same. And, you know, we don't do anything that different on our behalf. And so we really believe the grapes are different. And we believe those grapes are different, not because of the genetic selection, because it's the same, but because there's some quality in the grapes that are different when the soil is shale or when there's a lot of clay, or when there's limestone present, sand. All of these things produce wines that have interesting characters. And, you know, I, I love tasting with Raj because he's one of these people that will say things that really support that idea. For instance, he was telling me, it's like, God, you know, I don't know why... The Fleury wines really remind me of Oregon wines. And he was talking about this one night. And then, <laughs> you know, we discover, well, there's basalt in Fleury. And it's a different basalt than what we have in Oregon. But I think that's just one example of many where he has been able to associate something. And it's very hard to put your finger on it. You know, it's not like a certain flavor or a certain aroma. But it's just this quality in the wine. And it's coming from something. And there's a lot of evidence that these soils produce these different qualities. And if you can make the wines in a way that will be transparent to that, then you're really doing something special. So what does volcanic soil lend? Well, in Oregon, where we work with a lot of volcanic soil, the basalt that is, you know, the Jure soils, the vines are very strong. And there's also a lot of rain in the wintertime. And so there's a lot of water in the ground and the, that basalt holds a lot of water. And so we had a tremendous amount of warm weather this past vintage, 2015. And there's no irrigation at Seven Springs. And I was absolutely amazed at how there was just no water stress. I mean, these vines were given no water and survived what was just incredible, incredible warm weather. And so there is something special about that soil in terms of being able to dry farm, to successfully bring to maturity really beautiful grapes without the need of any irrigation. I think that that is something that is really special to Oregon. I don't think that irrigation necessarily will make a lesser wine, but I do think Producing a wine without irrigation in Oregon is something unique. We would never consider installing irrigation at Seven Springs because we, we find that such a unique quality. And I think the, the soil really helps you be able to do that. For instance, the soils we have in Santa Rita, there's no way. Even if we got the same amount of rainfall in the wintertime, they're much more meager. They don't have the same fertility. They don't have the same water holding capacity. They can't. They wouldn't be able to. Even in our cool, very cool climate, there would be so much water stress. You, you have to give them water. But I feel like at the same time, as you say that, when you look around some of your neighbors, the irrigation protocol seems to be different. Yeah, I mean, I think 
that you know irrigation is just a, it's another component to the farming that that is very difficult to manage. I think where you see it applied most successfully is where the person who's making the wine is also controlling the irrigation. I think that a lot of people don't understand that in California and Oregon. California maybe more than Oregon. You know, most vineyards are farmed by vineyard management companies. And so they have a different relationship to the vineyard than the winemaker does. And you can have highly collaborative and successful relationships. I mean, we do. We have a vineyard management team at all the vineyards we work with, Jessica Cortell in Oregon and Chris King at Domino Lacote and Ruben Sonzano at Stolman. And the relationship works great, but they are all, there's no irrigation in Oregon, but in California between Chris and Ruben, there's a lot of communication about when to apply water and how much water to apply as it pertains to wine quality, not so much as it pertains to how the vines look or how much water they seemingly want to have or need to have. So back to the own rooted question for a second, you know, you are planting grape from seed in that area in Santa Barbara, which Mm -hmm. is not something everyone does. I mean, it's like an experimental parcel. Yes, it's very experimental. The idea was a gift given to us by a man named Steve Price in Oregon. And he would just grow seedlings from grape seeds in his backyard. He was always surprised at how there would be some grapes left over from his home winemaking and little plants would pop up out of these seeds. He said, wow, you know, that's so amazing that the seeds are so successful in terms of their germination. So we collected... 20,000 seeds in the 2006 vintage. My wife did a lot of cleaning of seeds that year. And we managed to plant a great number of them at Domaine de Lacote as seedlings. They were germinated at a nursery and we took the, the most successful plants to the vineyard and we planted them directly into the ground. And that's obviously something that you can't do if you have phylloxera because seedlings are very fragile. And so we have had a lot of mortality because... A lot of them just didn't make it. But we've also had a lot that have survived. And we've had to be very patient um, because a grapevine needs to produce a certain amount of buds before it will fruit. And what we knew from the beginning was that many of these vines would not be successful in terms of fruiting. They wouldn't have perfect flowers. And so we needed a very special set of circumstances to develop in an individual for it to be able to be taken to the next stage, which is cloning them into a vineyard. Once it gets big enough, you'll take the material and you'll replant it. Right. But it needs to be able to produce a grape cluster that has red berries because a lot of the berries that we have seen so far are either white or gray. When you plant Pinot, the color is not stable. That's why we have Pinot Blanc, different colors of Pinots, because it when you plant it from seed, it's not stable. That vineyard is called Memorias. And it's the memory of Pinot Noir, because when you plant from seeds, you open up its entire ancestry. And so Pinot Noir is very old. It's 2,000 years old. And so if you were to plant seeds of Cabernet Sauvignon, you would actually not see very much diversity. You would see a lot of plants that look like Cabernet Franc, and you would see a lot of plants that look like Sauvignon Blanc, because it was a recent cross. And so when the crosses were recent, when you plant from seed, they'll show that parentage very clearly. But old varieties, which have been crossed and again, and there's just been so many fertilizations that 
what you have, and I think that we know this just from the the genetic material that we see in old vineyards in Burgundy, there's a lot of different plants out there. And so the R seedling project has certainly shown that the genetic material in Pinot Noir is very complex. And so those white grapes are somehow relatives of Pinot Blanc and those gray grapes are somehow relatives of Pinot Gris and they all are all just mixed up in the ancestry of Pinot Noir. And so our little project has been lovely to see just kind of how they're all children, right? And so these offspring are all just showing their history, their past. And so for our purposes, we're looking specifically for, you know, new plants, new individuals that show characteristics in their fruit of one of their parents, which is <laughs> a parent that we work with today, which has a small cluster with small berries that doesn't grow too vigorously. And the chemistry in that fruit is the proper chemistry to produce fine wine. Enough potential sugar to, to get the potential alcohol that we need, good acidity, good pH, nice tannins. And so that's the next step, which will be a, an exciting one and then a scary one because when we go to propagate those plants that do have those qualities in their grapes, we don't know what we're going to get in terms of the flavors and aromas. It could be something disgusting <laughs> or it could be something magical or anything in between that. That's something that we are all waiting with great anticipation for. And that seems like a long timeline to figure that out. It's a very long, I mean, we think it's 25 years. We've also, some people have told us that we can't call it Pinot Noir because it's technically not a clone of what we work with today that we label as Pinot Noir. But I don't know how I feel about that because one of the greatest things that I heard about Burgundy that I just, that I loved so much was when we were talking to, I, I think it was at Domaine Dujac, they were talking about the way the vines look in Chambon as opposed to the way they look in Moray or Gevray or Von Romanet for that instance. And the the many of the vineyards in Chambon, the Appalachian, grow differently. They grow upright, not like you normally see Pinot Noir grow. And the theory is, is that, well, you know, these were all pretty insular villages. If you were from the town of Chambol, you probably didn't hang out with the people from Bone. And they just used their own plant material within their village. And someone made, obviously, some really nice wine <laughs> from these plants. And so they said, hey, you know, I'm, I want to use that when I plant my, my new vineyard. And, and so it just became part of the culture of, of Chambol. And obviously, as wine drinkers today, we know that Chambol wines are different. And it's not just the terroir. Chambol wines are always more feminine and more delicate. And it makes sense now that they're probably working with a genetic variation of Pinot Noir that's just slightly different than maybe what the people are working with in Gevray or Moray or Nuit Saint-Georges. Or well, sometimes or, we hear about Pinot Fin. Yeah. And, you know, it's not always labeled that way on the bottle. No. And I think that that's... I think that there's something... Today, the Masal planting, which we like to do that as well, you do, wouldn't want the whole Cote d'Or to be planted to the, all the same selection, meaning that it's all Masal, that it's all just a mix of Pinot Fin. Maybe there is a nice idea that part of what makes Von Romanet Von Romanet and part of what makes these villages give them their, their unique characteristics is not just the terroir, but also that plant material that 
generations before the people who are working there now slowly cultivated. Well, I mean, I've heard that for, you know, you mentioned Rayos earlier, and I believe it was Randall Graham, I think on this show, but maybe just in person who said, you know, I don't think it's the same Grenache as everybody else. It's, people think of it as Grenache, but it's actually something different. I th- he's definitely told me that. I don't know if that it's on could, the tape. but I mean, I, I think most of us who work with a lot of vineyards would say that that's entirely believable. And at the same time, you know, you talked about the taste of Vone, but then you also said your clone at Domaine de la Cotis, the berry set is particularly small. And one of the things I've noticed in the Vone area, you know, like Latash, and when you look at it, the berries are quite small. And then when you go to California in other areas of the world, you know, not all the time, but sometimes you see berries that don't look anything like that, that look more quite, I mean, quite bigger. Yes. And so you're saying that at Domaine de la Cotis, you have smaller berries. Is that something you picked on purpose? That has a lot to do with what I discussed where I talked about before about the environmental pressure. So when grapes are flowering and they're flowering in coolish conditions, the pollination is not as successful. So milrondage, or as we call it in California, hens and chicks, is a function of a lot of those flowers not properly fertilizing. So like with Wente clone Chardonnay, some of the berries are fully done and then the others are like shot berries. And so that would be an example of what you're speaking of, which is just that particular genetic selection tends to promote that quality, which is why people like it. So even if you plant it in a warm climate, you're still going to get shot berries. So we took the Calera selection to Oregon and planted it at Seven Springs. And it does seem to produce smaller berries than the Pomard selection that a lot of people work with in Oregon. So that being said, the Calera at Seven Springs is a bigger berry than the Calera at or the Calera at Occidental. And you also talked about Pinot being different when you try to vertically trellis it based on where it is. In Vone or Chambol, sometimes it's different when you try to take that tendril and trellis it. But one of the things that seems very different is the difference between Syrah and Pinot when you try to vertically trellis it. I mean, it seems very different. I bet you have something to say about that. Yeah, so, so Pinot Noir is... One of the things that it's very susceptible to, and it has a lot to do with the climate of where you're growing Pinot Noir, is that there's a lot of mildew pressure. And we don't see as much mildew pressure with Syrah because Syrah is grown in typically little more dryish climates. In California, that would mean areas where there was less humidity. So you're further away from the ocean. So Dominal Coat, we have very high disease pressure, mostly mildew, because it's just a very humid environment because it's so close to the ocean. So when growing grapes in these kinds of climates, and you happen to grow a lot of Chardonnay and Pinot Noir in these kinds of climates, you need to manage your canopy in a different way because you're doing many more treatments during the growing season, and those treatments really need to have great efficacy. Otherwise, you're really going to have a lot of problems because if the mildew gets to the fruit, it really causes lots of problems for you. With Syrah, most of the Syrah vineyards we work with, even in the cooler climates, the disease pressure is not as high. And so you can have a more congested canopy, meaning that the VSP, the vertically shoot-positioned style of trellising, really allows for this very even spread of leaves. So, you know, you can also go so far as to actually branch lock the shoots, and so they're all equidistant from each other, and so you just get this really easy two-dimensional panel that you can spray sulfur or whatever you're treating your vineyard with. With Syrah, what we found is that 
Syrah, this kind of Syrah that we like to make, we like to actually have a lot of leaf coverage because it seems that to us that those really delicate floral aromas that you can get in Syrah, the violets, are very easily destroyed when there's too much sun exposure. And so we found that we can produce more aromatic Syrahs if we leave more leaves. And so one nice way of growing grapes where you get a lot of leaf coverage is vertically positioned. So it just grows up a stake like you see in Hermitage or in Cote Roti. Because the vine, there's a little, almost like a little basket off of the trunk. And the shoots kind of come out and you tie them at the top. And so the clusters are all kind of inside this little basket of leaves. And it's quite dense, actually. If you were doing that in a humid place, you would really struggle to keep on top of the disease pressure. But, you know, when you go to Cote Roti, it's one of the first things, if someone who's familiar with farming, you look at the vineyards and you say to yourself, well, there's no way that's mechanized. I mean, it's impossible. So it all has to be done by hand. Or some people use helicopters but you would need a lot of money to do that. So when you realize that it's all done by hand, you realize that, well, they can't be doing it that often then. <laughs> so when you ask the vigneron and Corotti, they'll tell you that there's actually not that many treatments, particularly compared to Pinot. And so that's why you can get away with that kind of trellising style, and it happens to be very beneficial for the grape. Pinot Noir, I think because it typically is grown where there's less heat and less solar radiation, there's not as much concern, at least for Domino Lacote, of sun damage. We do try and leave a lot of leaves because it's something that we believe very strongly in, not too much sun. In Oregon, we were working with a new vineyard management company, and so we told Jessica, you know, it's, we like a lot of leaves around the fruit. And <laughs> you know, she, she knows what that means for her. It, it's a much more difficult job for her because... When you leave a lot of leaves around the fruit, there's a lot of more disease, potential for disease pressure. But there in Oregon, I think it's really important because there's a lot of sun and you can get a lot of rustic tannins in the wines when you allow the skins of the grapes to get very thick because they're seeing so much sun. You can make finer wines, finer tannins, finer aromas, more floral, less spicy if you can limit the amount of sun exposure. You know, a lot of times we think of more sun as softening the tannins because the grapes get riper. But you're saying one of the responses of certain grapes is that they develop thicker skins and that gives a different kind of tannins that can be quite strong if the sun is strong. What was popular, in, and it's still popular in some vineyards, is people will they'll strip all the leaves of the fruit zone. Buzz all leaves. Right? You've driven by vineyards like this. The fruit is all exposed. In this situation, the grapes are exposed to a lot of sun and they do it quite early so that, because if you do it early it's like giving the, the skins a base tan. And so they're more resilient to sun damage later in the season if you expose them very early to sunlight. So it's, it was a very popular technique. People would go and they would just pull all the leaves just to expose the, the green berries to a lot of sun so they would build up this resistance. And so I think it was another reason why people started picking very late. Because if you pick those grapes early, they would have very, very burly tannins. But if you pick them very, very late, those tannins eventually become very melted that you get in those very opulent wines that we've seen from these some very, very good winemaking teams. They're dealing with very big tannins, but they're waiting a very long time. They're letting those tannins get very, very ripe on the vine. 
And then in the winery, they're doing a lot of great winemaking to ameliorate taking too much of those hard tannins. And so you get this wine that has amazing tannin. I mean, really amazing tannins. I think this is something that Robert Parker was particularly fond of, these beautifully layered, textured tannins. But the consequence of that was you, I think, you maybe didn't get as complex aromas and you certainly got more alcohol. And you had to water back or use reverse osmosis or label with a lot of alcohol or something. And so I think that that's, you spend some time with some producers who make Zinfandel. And I think that that's always a challenge with Zinfandel. You know, it, it can have very strong tannins if you pick it very early. Hence the popularity of picking Zinfandel very ripe because you have better tannins. You also have higher alcohol, but it was a trade-off that was accepted. That would be a technique that we'd associate with an era and a style and a right. place. But what would be techniques that we would associate with, you know, your era and your places and your wine? What are the things that fall into that? Obviously, the the balanced wine movement, whatever you want to call it. Do you have it. any connection to that? <laughs> yes. You know, I mean, I buy into it 100%. I... I'm a big proponent of wines that are balanced. And yes, you can get, you know, wishy-washy on the issue and say, well, there are balanced wines that are have a lot of alcohol and there are balanced wines that have very little alcohol. And I would agree with that, but my preference is usually something in the middle. You know, I a lot of the wines that I like before I even look at the label are somewhere between 12 and a half and 13 and a half degrees of alcohol. It's just there's plenty of wines that I've loved that are 15, and there are plenty of wines that I've loved that are nine. But the majority there are plenty of, of wines that you've loved. <laughs> okay, oh, you're so. talking about Germans? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I'm yeah. like, what, German, dude, German, <laughs> like, German wines. Yeah. I'm calling bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's maybe there's a couple muscadets that get down to that, you know, ten and a half, right? You know, the majority of wines. There's just there's a balance that is achieved with the austere elements in the wine, the the tannins and the acidity and the alcohol, which our palates perceive as a sugar. And so when those are balanced... You're saying the alcohol tastes sweet. Yeah. Yeah, it has a taste of sweetness to it. I, I didn't go to wine school, winemaking school, but one of the classes is, you know, you remove all the alcohol and they make you taste the wine without any alcohol. And it's basically undrinkable. You know, it's just, it's awful. It's so sour and bitter. And so those sour and bitter elements, which are coming from the acidity and the tannins, the alcohol is what balances those things. And so if you believe in those balanced flavors, at some point, if you have too much alcohol, then the wine becomes too sweet. And if you don't have enough alcohol, then the wine is too bitter or acidic or both. And I think that Piedmontese wines, which I love, tend to have a little bit more alcohol. Well, they also tend to have more acidity and tannin. And I think that that's the balance that I believe in. People have use balanced wines to just mean one kind of wine, which is, I don't think that was ever the point of the movement because it was really about balanced Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, or I should say even balanced Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir doesn't have a lot of tannin. It doesn't, I mean, it has acidity, but no more acidity than a lot of wines. So yes, when you have too much alcohol, the wines get sweet because there's simply not enough tannins. There are not enough of those bitter elements to balance the higher alcohol. I think that's been a great development personally in California. I mean, I think it's, it's very thoughtful and I think it's, it really speaks to 
not being on either end of the spectrum and trying to to work within a more comfortable range. But you're often making a burgundy comparison in your own work. I feel like when we yeah. talk about Pinot, you often make a burgundy comparison. So is there a burgundy producer that what you're aspiring to do, say like Domaine Delacote, that rings bells for you, what that producer is doing in burgundy? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot. Uh, well, I think one of the reasons burgundy is so wonderful is that the people behind it also happen to be, in many cases, very wonderful people. Maybe not in person, because I didn't, haven't had a chance to meet them all. I never got to meet Henri Jaillet, but I've had enough of his wines to say that there's something really special about those wines. Oh, I thought you were taking it the other direction. You're like, they're really <laughs> wonderful people, maybe not in person. That's why when I have seances with Henri Jaillet, <laughs> he seems really nice. I don't know what he was like in person. Like, I thought you were going there. Like, No, I just mean... Every answer is like, yes, no. I just yes, mean no. that they're special. They have, they have, you know, when you meet the Lafarge family, I, it's just really... When you're down in that... 11th century seller and you're tasting with Frederic or Michel and it just, it's just so those are some of the for me the greatest moments of being in the wine industry to be with people who are so knowledgeable have so much history and have such a dedication to their craft and are producing wines for an aesthetic value you know it's not really sure that I'm sure they would all like to make more money and they happened to be, well, actually, not in the Cote de Bone because there's been so many hail events. But, you know, they really, I mean, to that point, they really take it in stride. I mean, you, you go to the domain, you just, you just feel so badly for, for them because there's so few barrels. And a lot of them are, they're sad, but they're okay. I mean, they just want to make sure they, they don't fail as a business, that they're able to continue because it's so important to pass it on to the next generation. And that's really where the value is. And the wine is about an aesthetic value that is not about how concentrated it is. It's really about when you work with, particularly like at Domaine Lafarge, where they have all of these beautiful parcels, you know, Cluche and Caire. I mean, it, you want those wines to really express the terroir because you know the terroir. You work in the vineyards, you see it, you feel it, and you just want those wines to express themselves as what you see in those vineyards. You don't want them to be the same. So you're saying if you work your own vineyards, you have more stake in the game and having that come through in the bottle? I think you're just more emotionally attached. You you, you know, when I'm in Bloomsfield, it's always windier than it is at Lacote. So when I taste the wines, I don't expect other people to be able to sense that, but I want to sense it. That's the part I like because the wind has the seaweed flavor and the Bloomsfield always has more seaweed flavor. It does. And for me, it, it mirrors some other flavors that I like in Burgundy, but they're not the same flavor. Right. It's just, it sets off similar sensors for me. Right. Where I'm like, oh, friend. You know what I mean? <laughs> more than more than Lacote, even though I think it's probably the more elegant, more interesting wine. It's like the probably the more complex wine, but there's this little... It's like, ooh, really fancy sea salt on the Bloom's Field, and it gets me every time. You know, yeah. it's my experience with it. I, it gets me too. I, you know, I there was a marine biologist that came to the winery, and he was with a friend who was into wine. He wasn't necessarily into wine, and he was commenting on this these ocean flavors and aromas, and he said, you know, it's interesting because it really smells like when kelp is blooming. And I just, whether that's true or not, I just, I love the idea that there is something blooming and it's going into the atmosphere, into the environment, 
and it's finding its way onto the cuticle, the waxy substance on the berries or the grapes, and it sticks there and it makes its way into the wine. At least I would like to think that. Whether that's really happening or not, I don't know. But and that's why it's called that, Bloomsfield. Is that why? Because oh, he said it's blooming, and no. then you named it that. No, <laughs> no, Bloomsfield. That's that'd be great. Um, uh, After the maybe we'll, thing, maybe we'll change thought, the story. You know. um, no, Bloomsfield is is named that because it was planted on Bloomsday. Okay, fair enough. Back to the technique thing. I yeah. mean, when you set up your protocol at Domaine de la Code, are there protocols in Burgundy that seem reminiscent to you? I think that we are heavily influenced and very fond of the wines from Beaujolais. Um, Which is an interesting comment to make. And it's because the very best ones, and for me, maybe my favorite is Metras, there's an incredible way of handling the fruitiness of Gamay. He is able to capture the fruitiness, not diminish it in any way, but build around that fruitiness a wine that is elegant and sophisticated and complex. And I think that most people who are familiar with Pinot Noir and Gamay know that Gamay is not inherently as complex of grape, doesn't make as complex of wines as Pinot. So these very thoughtful vignerons in Beaujolais have this grape, Gamay, wonderful grape that has this beautiful quality of fruit, but maybe is lacking a little in complexity. So they go to the next step, which is, well, how do we make our wines more complex? And they are big proponents of microbiology. What does that mean? Meaning that they, you know, these guys, the, the, the natural wine guys, right? Uh, Lapierre and Foyard and Metras, and they don't sulfur the grapes. And so when you don't sulfur the grapes, you don't kill, exterminate the natural microbiology that's on those grapes, the bacteria and yeast that are there. So that's why when you smell a lot of these wines, there are, you know, sometimes there's more Brutanomyces than other years. Sometimes there's more VA than other years. But when it all comes together, when you have that perfect fleury, it just has just the right amount of Brutanomyces, just the right amount of VA. It has that beautiful carbonic fruit that you get from Gamay. And this lovely texture, there's tannin and acidity. When that happens, they make a wine that rivals, in my opinion, a lot of Grey Burgundy. Because it has all the trademarks, all the hallmarks that we look for, which is complexity, this beautiful balance, this ease of drinking the wine. It's so easy to drink, so pleasurable. It's harder to do with Gamay. You have to take more risk because... It's a risky way of making wine not to use sulfur. And I think there are very few domains in Burgundy who would take that risk, particularly when you're looking at the value of their wines. Beaujolais is still affordable, even from the best producers. But the Grand Cru Pinot Noir vineyards, I don't think you're going to see a lot of winemakers take that kind of risk with microbiology because if something spoils on them, they've just lost a fortune. But the funny part to me when you say this is that the wines from me that remind me more of Beaujolais flavors is the sandy wines, not the Domaine de la Cote wines. Mm. So am I just dumb or what am I not understanding? Well, so we employ, what's interesting about that is we employ the same winemaking technique to both programs. And that's been a fascinating and rewarding experience because we make the wines in very, very similar fashion. 
the biggest difference is, is that with the Sandy Pinot Noirs, there's very few punch downs, or sometimes none at all. Lots of whole bunches. And with the Domino Lacote wines, we do do more punch downs. Although though, the fermentations start off exactly the same. 100% whole bunches or 90% whole bunches, and no sulfur. I think that what we get at Domino Lacote is we get, because of the way we grow the grapes, the vineyards are very high density. In my opinion, they're just very beautiful vineyards. They, I agree with that. They, it's yeah. a fair <clears throat> statement, I think. <laughs> they, I mean. they have a beautiful terroir. They're lovingly managed by Chris King. They are balanced in terms of their vigor and their fruit, their yield. And so the raw material, for me personally, I think there's more there than when we're working with a lot of the Sandy vineyards because many of the Sandy vineyards we work with are conventionally farmed. So they don't have the same vine density. They don't have the same microbiology in the vineyard and on the grapes. So when we make the wines, I think we're seeing a terroir that we work with some beautiful terroirs with Sandy, just like at Domino Lacote, but there's something more in those grapes. And so, yes, the Sandy wines are more Beaujolais-like because I think the grapes themselves are maybe more Gamay-like <laughs> or don't have the, the same amount of complexity that we have in the grapes grown at Domino Lacote. So when we apply the same technique, we just get more from Domino Lacote grapes. Well, the thing you did in 13 is that you got in concrete that was unlined to do fermentations in and then also for aging. And what's been the upshot of that? I mean, what's the before and after? Well, so we don't, so, uh, we don't age the wines in concrete, but um, we do all of our fermentations in unlined concrete vessels. And that now, there's two reasons. One is just the thermodynamics. It, the concrete tanks, they keep the grapes cold when we put them in there cold. And then the grapes, the must stays warm when the fermentation finishes because the concrete absorbs the heat during fermentation. And so we just get these, these beautiful fermentation curves. And I think that helps us make better wine. So, and we don't need any glycol jackets. We don't use anything to change the temperature. And there's something really satisfying about that. And I think we're just lucky. I think we, we make wine in Lompoc, which is typically not very warm. So we don't have tanks overheat. Typically, when we think of tanks that don't overheat, naturally, without glycol, we think of like the 11th century cellar, like yeah. under the, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. And Lompoc is the opposite of that. <laughs> like it's, you know, it's the a, industrial it, park. Yeah, it's an industrial park, but it's a cool, it's a relatively cool climate. It's not, you know, if we were making wine in the Napa Valley, I think maybe it would be without refrigeration, either refrigerating the cellar or having refrigeration on the tanks, you might have some fermentations that just get too hot. And, and that's very dangerous because the yeast will die. But where we make wine, we're, we're, we're just able to do it naturally. We're able to put the grapes into the tanks. They ferment very healthily. They, they never get too hot, but they also get enough heat. And so we don't need to do anything. But So this, theoretically, if you took Napa Valley Cab and you fermented it in Lompoc, you might be able to get like a different expression of terroir because it, yeah. You, right? I think so. That's what you're saying, right? I like think so. Part of the vinification is the terroir. Uh, for sure. There's, there's, I mean, and I think that the vigneron everywhere will tell you that, that in hot vintages, the wines were different, not just because it was hot for the grapes, it was also hot for the winemaker. In the cellar, they struggled because fermentations were too fast or they Mallow got too hot. too quick. Or... Or, exactly. Or in cold vintages, 
they really struggle to get the fermentation started. <laughs> you know, so yes, terroir extends beyond just to the vines. It extends to the cellar too. And I think for me, you know, we don't, we don't sanitize the winery. We use only water and sponges. And I think that with the, I should, there's an exception. We, we will sometimes pressure wash the floors and try and sanitize the floors and the drains, but the equipment is never sanitized. The walls are never sanitized. The barrels are never sanitized. And so I think we have a really large microbial load in the winery. And I think it's really important for our style of winemaking. I think that microbial load, it starts fermenting the grapes along with the yeast and bacteria that are on the grapes right when those grapes are put into the tank. You know, those tanks are full of dormant yeast and bacteria that are just waiting for a food source. And so you're saying every year it's gotten easier. Is that the implication yeah, of that? I think so. And I think it gets more interesting. We see more complexity. But I think that... It makes a lot of sense because when you think of people who make cheese, it's necessary for the, the cove to have a lot of microbes. You know, I, I really enjoyed listening to Prevost talk about the mushrooms in his cellar, which are just the mold, and how he thinks that allowing that element to enter into his barrels or that just the barrels being in that environment contributes to the complexity of the wine and the the interest level of the wine because the mold he has in his cellar is different than the mold in someone else's cellar, or maybe the amount of it is different than in someone else's cellar. And that's, that's all going to contribute to making a more distinctive wine. And I think that that's really what we're after is a better wine is a more distinctive wine, a wine that has more complexity and a unique quality that you don't find in other wines. And what about the, the subject of reduction in your wines? So we don't typically like reduction in Pinot Noir. And is um, that why you do open top, like fermentation? Yeah, because we find that it suppresses the fruit. In Chardonnay, we like to suppress the fruit. <laughs> because the what we struggle with with the Chardonnay is, is maybe too much fruit. And we want the wines to be more linear and to be have more restraint. So reduction is a way of bringing an aromatic element to the wine that is not fruitiness. It's sulfurous or it's flinty, um, which really is very complementary to those other aromas that we get in our Chardonnay, which is oyster shell and stoniness. These are all really lovely descriptors for Chardonnay that we actively seek out, not you know, peaches or apricots or lemons. And what about Syrah? Syrah tends towards reduction, right? It does. At Peter's Hussey, we never have a problem with it. Uh, thank goodness. But I think it's because we don't use... we The vineyards that we work with, there are very few treatments. So there's very little elemental sulfur that comes in with the grapes. And then during fermentation, we don't use any sulfur when the grapes arrive. And we don't use any sulfur until the wine is racked to the bottling tank. So there's not very much opportunity for the wine to reduce because Syrah does tend to have a, a problem with reduction. And, and I think it's, for me personally, I find it very unattractive. It, Syrah, the, the floral and spice aromas are very delicate because 
the herbal and fruit aromas are quite strong. So any reduction and you just, it masks those, those more delicate aromas and flavors and you just, you lose them. And one of the things I've seen with Syrah is that reduction can seem like wood. Like it can showcase wood differently, which is also kind of true with certain Chardonnay, right? Like a reduction seems to showcase the wood differently. Some people will certainly confuse it as, wow, you used a lot of oak this year. And I think it's the flintiness. It's the smoky, flinty smokiness that you get. We see a lot of that in the Oregon Pinot Noirs. There's a, a smokiness, which, you know, Raj likes to attribute to the basalt. Um, but I, and I don't disagree with that, but I think that perhaps it's also coming from some reduction and that reduction is expressing itself as a, as a smokiness, which could easily be confused for toast from the inside of a barrel. So do you have a different wood regime? You know, is the protocol yeah. different for different wines? So we use more and more new wood, uh, Domingo Lacote, less new wood at Seven Springs. We use the same cooperage because we don't want to add complexity to the wine through different kinds of barrels. We want the barrel to be static element in the equation. We have found that we like new wood with the Domingo Lacote wines because just like alcohol is a element that brings sweetness to the wine, oak is another ingredient that brings sweetness to the wine. So if you already have a wine that's verging on being a little bit sweet, then if you apply new oak to that, I think you push it over the edge. And I think we, we've seen many examples of that. <laughs> um, certainly it's very popular. People like the style. But for us, I think you can see how oftentimes new wood can drive a wine to just being even more sweet and less savory. But at Domino Coat, I think we're getting to the point now where our alcohols are low. We have good tannins that bring some austerity. And so applying some new oak, we just achieve yet even more beautiful balance. And that's very exciting to me. I mean, I think that we've just tasted too many great burgundies that were produced from 100% new oak, where the oak was just perfectly balanced. And I think it's, it's finding that way to how you grow your grapes, how you make your wine, so that the new oak is an element that adds a lot of complexity without driving the wine to being unbalanced in the sweetness. Syrah already has a lot of fruit. It ha typically has more alcohol. And so I don't typically enjoy new oak with Syrah. So I, you cut it back a little bit. It's at Peter Sassi, it's zero. It's never, it never seems to bring something that we want in the wine. Now, I think people who are successful at using new barrels would say, you're just drinking it too young. You just give it, give it five years, give it 10 years and the oak will integrate. And I, th I think that's true. But I think we live in a time now where we can't expect people to age our wines. I think people are hungry to experience wines. The young consumers, people who are just getting into wine, they don't want to buy wine and wait 10 years to find out what that wine is like. They want to be able to experience wine now. And certainly they could buy older wines, I suppose, but those are hard to find and they're usually expensive. So I think we're better today trying to produce wines that have a much bigger window, meaning that maybe you only need to wait a year and the wine will become very expressive and well-balanced and it will stay that way 
for a very, very long time before it begins to fade. I think that's what we try and do. We try and create wines that have a very large window of drinkability. So that being said, how much press wine do you use? I, I feel like there's a fair amount in some of those wines. Uh, it's interesting. It depends on the vintage. You know, there's a little book. It's not very good, I don't think, but there's some real gems in there. The book about Henri Jaillet, and there's a lot of quotes, and it's a translation, and so maybe there's a lot lost in translation, but it's a great little book. And one of the things that he that he said that I, I really stuck in my mind was he said that the new vignerons, the young vignerons today, don't spend enough time at the press. And we now spend a lot of time at the press because... Tasting it as it comes out. Yeah, because there's a real change. And so some people try to solve the problem by taking a lot of different press cuts. So they just start going directly to barrel. And so you get 10 different versions of the wine. To me, it's a nightmare because later you have to put those pieces back together and you just, it's a lot of options. I prefer to trust my palate and to taste the wines as it comes from the press. And sometimes we use no press wine. And sometimes we use a small amount. We're using less and less with the new vintages because we find that the press wine doesn't have... You can make a wine that has more body, a wine that has more texture with the press wine, but usually it sacrifices some kind of finesse. And I think... Most vintages, a little bit of press wine is a good idea because it just does seem to give the wine maybe a little bit firmer backbone, just a little bit more structure, which is good. But if you use too much, then the wine begins to have more mouthfeel, but you you lose these really delicate qualities. So is it fair to say when I taste back vintage Stoltman Syrah, there might have been more press wine in there? For sure. Okay, that makes sense to me then. For sure. I mean, I think in the the 14 vintage with Stolman, we used zero press wine. And this vintage, we used a little bit more. But still, today, I mean, usually it's only what freely comes from the press. Once we turn actually turn the press on, we take maybe the first cycle, which is 0.2 bar. And somewhere between 0.2 and 0.4 which would be the first and second steps, is when we usually call the cut. And then the rest of the wine is con actually consolidated. And we found that that wine is actually a really nice wine. So it's not that press wine is... I think people think that press wine is bad. I think if the wine was good in the fermenter, and if you have a nice press, you can get a lot of really good wine from the press, all the way to high pressure but that wine will not be as aromatically complex. It and that's the challenge in the climate, is to get more aromatic complexity. And I think that that's something that is, it's so hard to teach that to, you know, I work with three great young winemakers, Benjamin de Cristina in Oregon, and John Faulkner and Tim Fimpler in California. And I think that I don't, there's only one way of appreciating aromatic complexity in wine, and that's tasting a lot of wine. That's always a discovery. I don't think anyone is ever born just appreciating aromatic complexity in wines. I think it's something that you gain with each great ball of wine you have. 
you get more and more fascinated by that component of wine. And what about mallow and barrel? I assume that's something that you're doing. Not so much anymore. I mean, we wines finish mellow in barrel, but because we're not using any sulfur, we tend to have very early mallows because sulfur is very effective at eradicating bacteria that would transform the malic acid to lactic acid. So we have a lot of simultaneous fermentation that happens, generally considered a very bad thing. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the opposite of some of the burgundy paradigms, right? Oh, yes. It, I think it's um, when you don't use sulfur, it's one of the risks because oftentimes what does do the malolactic fermentation is not enococcus, which is the more successful bacteria. It's oftentimes lactis bacillus, and that can produce a lot of VA. It can produce a lot of off aromas. We find that the mallows for us, because we don't use sulfur, happen quite early. The wines go into a cold cellar very rapidly, so it can sometimes take them a long time to finish. But we're at a point now where we're rethinking the whole idea of when to bottle wine. Because I think there was a, an idea that if you have a great wine, it needs to spend a long time in barrel. It was certainly very popular in the last 20 years, you saw a lot of people doing very long elevage. And certainly in the Syrah world, Gigal with the 48 months, you know, for the single vineyards really captivated people that, oh, you know, if you have a, if you have a great wine, you can make it even greater if you leave it for longer in barrel. I believe this with Vangean, but I don't know if I believe this with Syrah and Pinot because I think the way we're making wines today, working so hard to get the wines to have these delicate and complex aromas, if you wait too long to bottle them, you lose them. You lose the fruit and you lose those elements. So we're now considering bottling the wines actually earlier than we've ever thought before, which is before the next vintage, because we think that there's, there's maybe more to gain with early bottling and more to lose with a later bottling with our wines. It would be totally different with someone else's wines, but but with our wines. And one of those things that you could gain would be freshness and long ageability in the bottle. Right. So one of the great wine experiences of my life was drinking 89 Jabolet with Adam Tolmac, my first vintage at Ojai. We were doing punch downs late at night, and he, he brought this bottle from his cellar, and we were working on Bienecito Syrah, and I was in California for the first time in a long time and working there and my first my first vintage with a great winemaker and I was the only employee so it was a very intimate experience and Ojai is a very beautiful place and this wine was just I mean that pretty much sealed the deal for me. I had a great first harvest but drinking that wine, working on Syrah with Adam, being in Ojai, it just it was totally magical. But Jabolet is one of these people that was known for bottling the straws very early. And I think you can taste that now in the old Javelets. They have a energy and a freshness and a finesse to them that still there, you know, even when the wines get older. Well, there's a California equivalent too in that Edmund St. John, he bottles early. Yes. I mean, very much on purpose, you know. Yes. Uh, La Lubis Loire is known to also sometimes bottle the wines before the next vintage. And... I think it's something that is very, there are so many decisions to make <laughs> in producing a wine from what you plant 
in a specific place, how you plant it, how you farm it, when you pick the grapes, how you ferment it, how you do the elevage, and that last step of when you bottle it is, it's very difficult because you can't go back. You can't rewind the wine. So you can't say, oh, let's, you know, you can only take your experience, which is, hmm, you have to, you know, working with Raj, who has such an amazing memory of taste and smell, is also just a tremendous opportunity for me because I can taste with him and he will say, and I, and I believe him when he says that he remembers the way the wine was before the harvest. And he's comparing it to the wine that we have now, which is after the harvest. This is out of barrel. And it's so clear in his mind. For me, it's a little more opaque. I remember the wine, but I don't think I remember it as specifically as he does. And I think having that gift of that almost photographic memory of smell and taste, it's very helpful because I think it helps you begin to make differences. I feel like in my experience as a winemaker, I've had a lot of evolution from how I used to make wine in 2001 when I took my first job as a winemaker for Stolen Vineyards to today in 2015 where I produce wine for six wineries and the way we make wine today has nothing to do with the way I made wine in 2001. I've kept a lot of the fundamentals, which I learned from Adam, which is very cold cellars, try and use minimal amounts of sulfur, try to not manipulate the wine. But I think where I've had a great opportunity to, to advance our cause and our style is this quest for greater and greater transparency, but also with keeping the wines delicious. And that's a combination of the vineyard and the farming and the winemaking and the elevage and when and how to bottle the wines. Looking at that, what's the next evolution going to be? <laughs> I mean, you know, what's the next thing you're wondering about besides when to bottle? It's a great question. I think now what we're hoping for is we have a great long-term project with the seedlings, which is very ambitious. And we have our fingers crossed that that will be successful because that will just be enormously rewarding for that to produce a wine that is a beautiful wine because it would have really started from ground zero. <laughs> you know, more than just what to plant and where to plant it. That would be actually creating the vines. So I think I have a lot of energy and enthusiasm for that. I think at this point, when I do a tasting, I look at all the wine that I help produce, and I say to myself, ooh, that's a lot of wine. <laughs> and I ask myself, and I've had people ask me, do you think you could make a better wine if you only made one of those? You just chose one. Do you think the quality would then go to a whole nother level because you're singularly focused? And it's probably convenient that I don't believe that because <laughs> I like making all the wines that I make. But I do believe now that the team, the winemaking team, the people that we work with in the winery, 
the young men that we have in California and young men we have in Oregon and the the vineyard managers that we're working with, I think creating more of a community with the people who are responsible for helping produce these wines is the next step because making them understand what we want to do and making them appreciate the kind of wines that we love. And some of them maybe won't like them and maybe they would be more successful with a different style of wines. But I think the team we have today loves the same kind of wines that we love, which is very gratifying. And so I think we have the opportunity now to begin making wine more collectively. And, and I think that that's something that I love about Burgundy is that you go there and I, I, I was lucky in the 11 vintage because it was late in California and early in Burgundy. So I was able to go and you see people picking in a vineyard and we were driving by Volney and they were picking. And I said, wow, there are a lot of people picking. And Dominique said, well, yeah, th- I, when you start picking, everyone picks. <laughs> sure. There's maybe one domain that picks a little early and there's maybe a domain that picks a little bit later, but mostly everyone, you know, when Jean-Marc Rouleau starts picking, Dominique's going to be picking pretty soon or the other way around. There's a real collective consciousness about ripeness, about when things are ready. And I think we're a long ways away from that, having that in California or Oregon, but I think we can have it on a, on a smaller scale in our own little organization with the people that we work with that, we begin thinking collectively. And I think once that happens, we will see another evolution because now it's a lot of minds working for a cause and a goal that is clearly defined and that everyone is really in love with. So the person I haven't talked about much is, is my wife, Melissa, who is maybe the most important partner in the whole process because she's a sounding board and I'm pretty sure... She's at her capacity. (laughs) Um, But the bakery is something where we're transitioning to her really running the bakery. And I'm really excited about this because we've had some really talented bakers pass through our bakery and they've done a tremendous job. We have a a young man now, um, Jonathan Ang, who is super talented and is willing to to be a mentor and to be a teacher to Melissa in the bakery. Because I think for me, the very final step where, you know, you think about well, what, will, what will make you happy when you want to slow down, when it's not, you know, 70 miles per hour uh, right when you wake up. And I think for me, if we're lucky to keep our health and, and be be happy in our old age would be bake a little bit of bread and make a little bit of wine. And I just think that that's the two metiers, the two crafts are are linked, and they both celebrate beautiful raw ingredients, very hand crafted and personal way expression. And I think that it's something that is also just so wonderful to share with people. It's very wonderful to share bread with people because it's so immediate. It comes out of the oven. You show them the mill. They see the grain. 
they see the bakery and they get to bite into this loaf of bread that was created right there only within 48 or 72 hours. And so there's just, it's very hard to, to beat that. I mean, that's, it's, we grow grain locally. And when you walk through a field of grain, <laughs> sounds super corny, but you really feel the power of that. It's, it's, it's what builds civilizations because it's just a lot of nourishment. And you know that all of that grain can so easily be stored and it doesn't spoil if it's stored properly and kept in the right place. And from that grain, you can produce beautiful products with almost nothing, only water and salt. And you can make something extraordinary. And that's, you know, being connected to that, the simplicity of that, the, the immediacy, the simplicity, the, the monastic work, because it really is, at least for our bakery, an individual work. It's not a, a team in the bakery. Um, it's a team in terms of the collective whole of our enterprises. But, but there's something very different about that pursuit than winemaking, and I, I think it's complementary. I don't maybe know yet exactly how, but I know we don't want to lose the bakery because it's a real struggle to make that business work. Because I think it brings it brings some something to all of our work, makes it more pure. Sashi Mormon feels that when we slow down, it would be nice to do so with a shared glass of wine. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. Sashi Mormon of several wineries in California and Oregon, including Sandy, Domaine de la Cote, Pence, and Stoltman, and also Seven Springs. Thank you. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.